Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and find our seat as we get going this morning. This, this was a great strategy. We're like, hey, kids, get a bunch of donuts. Okay, now, kids, sit quietly and still for the next half hour. How's that sound, right? Amen. Well, it's good to be worshiping with you all this morning. Happy Easter. Uh, he has risen. It is good to be with you celebrating that amazing fact as a church family. So if you are a regular tender, it's so great to be back together uh, after our Good Friday service. Uh, if this is your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. Uh, I'd love to meet you after the service, so please stick around so we can say hi and get to know one another. But again, yeah, just happy Easter. It's so great to be here worshiping with you all. We, um, last time we were in this gym was on Friday evening, and it was a somber and solemn uh, commemorative service where we were reflected on the death of Jesus uh, in our place for our sins. It was dark and uh, foreboding, all these emotional things. It was silent. And now this morning is everything but that. It's the exact opposite. We get to celebrate the victorious news that Jesus rose again from death. Uh, he loved us enough to die in our place, and he was powerful enough to rise from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death. And so if that's true, if Jesus has defeated sin and death, and the only thing we need to do this morning is to celebrate. It's our only job assignment is to rejoice in the fact that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And so what we talked about on Friday was that the problem of our sin, our, our, our rebellion against God, every single one of us, we are born into sin and rebellion, and that sin appears immovable. It's as if our sin is such a heavy weight that nothing in the universe can move it. But then on the cross, there's this collision between the seemingly immovable object of our sin and the unstoppable force of the love of Jesus. And when, and when that collides, we see a picture of the cross, but when that collides, that thing that seems unmovable of our sin, we find out has actually been defeated on the cross because of Jesus' death. And it wasn't just his death in our place, it was his resurrection. And so that explosion of his love and our sin created this powerful moment called the resurrection that we get to celebrate this morning. And so, so our goal this morning is that everything we do this morning would, would celebrate the fact that Jesus has rose from the dead, that he has defeated sin and death, and we get to celebrate. So what we're going to do this morning is, is, is pray that, that God works that truth deep into our hearts, that not a single, single person in this room would leave with the same understanding of God's love that they came in with. We might leave more confident in the fact that, that Jesus is powerful enough to defeat sin and death, that Jesus is loving enough to come to the earth to, to live in our place and to die in our place, and that if the resurrection is true, then that changes everything, right? It's the one thing in the universe that changes everything. So what we're, how we're going to do that this morning for the next 10 minutes or so uh, ten, be praying with me 10 minutes. Let's hope that it stays to that 10-minute time frame. Uh, is that we're going to study a, a little bit of three verses in the book of 1 Peter. So if you are a regular tender with us, you know we've been going through uh, Peter's first letter, the epistle of 1 Peter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to chapter 1, and we're going to look at three verses there, because I think it does such a great job of summarizing why it is that Easter is so powerful. And, and I love the fact that we are in uh, 1 Peter and this season of, of uh, Holy Week leading up to Easter and, and as a church studying this, because Peter is just such a great character to focus on, right? Especially at the time of Easter, everyone loves to zero in and zoom in on Peter because of how powerful his story is. Right? We're all familiar with Peter, right? That apostle Peter, everyone's favorite disciple. He's so energetic and boisterous and jumps in headfirst with everything. Uh, he's the first to identify Jesus as the Messiah. He's the first one to say, to jump out of the boat, to walk on water. Uh, he's, he's the first one to pledge his allegiance to Jesus the night before he was betrayed, saying that he would be committed to Jesus. Even to death, he would never betray him. But the reason we 
connect with Peter so much also is because we see the other side of that, right? We see his betrayal where a few hours after pledging his allegiance, he, he runs in fear. He runs away weeping and heartbroken over the fact that he had betrayed his Savior. And, and then when the resurrection comes, three days later, it's Peter is the one who runs to the tomb to see whether or not the story that the women had told him is true. Uh, when, in John's resurrection account, he points out that uh, even though Peter left first, John actually beat him to the, the temple or to the, to the empty tomb. He, John's like, I'm Jesus' favorite and I'm also faster than Peter is why he likes to emphasize that. But the, but the, the reason why Peter is so great is because we all connect with his story. But the amazing thing that we don't focus on enough is that after the resurrection, Peter isn't really a part of his own story anymore. He doesn't spend his life talking about himself. He doesn't spend his life drawing attention to himself. What he gives the rest of his life to, what he gives even his death for, is telling everyone else about the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. He has this powerful, amazing transformation where he goes from being a disciple who is cowering in fear to a disciple who is willing to be crucified upside down for his Savior, saying that he was unworthy to die the same death as Jesus. And so even though Peter is this amazing story, all Ultimately, Peter would say that talking about him this morning is the biggest waste of time because we have this amazing privilege of talking about Jesus and the resurrection and what Jesus has done for all of us. So we're going to take just three verses from Peter's letter and see how this points us to the good news of the resurrection. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, this is, this is, there's so much going on here. The part I love that at the beginning is Peter begins by directing our attention where it should be. He doesn't begin by talking about us and what, how great we are or what we have, the privileges we have. He begins by directing our gaze toward God and saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that should always be the heart posture of any follower of Jesus. Our gaze doesn't rest on ourselves or our actions or our future or anything like that. Our gaze rests on God and his power and his love. And so we bless him, we praise him for all that he has done. And the amazing thing here is this letter is written to a group of people who are suffering. They're experiencing persecution, and he doesn't begin by saying, hey, let's talk about your pain and how hard your life is, even though that's a reality of this universe, right? Aaron did a great job setting up that song and reminding us that the darkness of sin and death is a very present thing in this world as we await Jesus' second coming. But Peter doesn't say, even though you're suffering, let's talk about that. He says, I know you're suffering, but let's direct our gaze at Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason we bless him is because, what he says next, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I love that phrase, according to his great mercy. Jesus is not stingy with his mercy. He is abundant with his mercy. His kindness overflows through him. It's the thing that he most longs to give to us is his mercy and his grace. He is not judgmental or hard-hearted or stingy with it. He is overflowing with his mercy. It is abundant. If you think about, um, like, like if you go camping, right, you can, you can get a, a camping shower where you have a big bucket of water and you take a lot of work to, to heat up the water and put it up in the tree so you can have this little trickle of water that comes down on you so you can try to get clean while you're camping. That's how a lot of us view God's mercy, right? It's this little trickle that comes our way that isn't really accomplishing much and it was a lot of effort to earn in the first place. But what Peter is saying is blessed be God according to his great, abundant, magnificent mercy. Okay, his mercy is not a camping shower. It is the ocean. 
It is wave after wave continually piling on us, overwhelming us with how good and gracious and kind he is. And also we see the picture of his grace in that he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He doesn't say you have earned the right to have a living hope. You were a super good person. You, you worked so hard all year and you finally deserved the right to have a living hope. He says, no, you have been, God himself has caused you to be born again to this living hope. That's the essence of Christianity. That's the essence of the gospel. I think there's so many times where, especially on Easter Sunday like this, where, where we get in our Sunday best, we all try to look our nice. We have this image to the world of that Christianity is people who work really hard at being nice people. When the, the truth is, it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with anything we have accomplished. We could not cause our own birth. God himself in his love and abundant mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that's why that image of that metaphor of new birth is so powerful. Because what role did you play in your birth? Right? Do you ever go to the hospital when a, a newborn has come out and you're like, hey, great job. I'm so proud of you being born. You did such a great job being born. The way you, the way you assembled your DNA yourself, like you did a really good job with your birth, right? And I think every mom here would want to smack someone if they said that. But the point is like that so much of our life and our identity is shaped by our birth. Right, your DNA that you get from your parents determines your height, it determines your ethnicity, it determines your athleticism or the lack thereof. All these kinds of things is determined by your DNA that you had nothing to do with. And that's what Peter is saying here. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says that in order to come to Christ, you have to be born again. And there's this obvious question, how do I get born again? And the answer is the same as your first birth. You have nothing to do with it. It is only the grace and the mercy and the love of God that overwhelms us with his kindness that causes us to be born again to this living hope. And I think that's why a lot of times we think that um, the biggest barrier to coming to Christ is our sins. We think that our struggles in the past, that those are the things that are going to keep us from coming to God. But most often I think the thing that keeps us from coming to Jesus is our competencies. It's, it's the way that we think we have our life together. We think we don't need to be born again. I don't need mercy. I'm killing it right now. I'm working really hard. Everything I have in life, I have worked my own fingers to the bone to achieve. And we think that if we work hard, that means God owes us. Okay? And if, if you think God is in your debt, that is the reason you will never truly come to Jesus. Jesus is, a God of, uh, is uh, the God of mercy, whose abundant mercy comes to us, not because of anything we have done or could do, but only because of what he has done for us instead. That's what makes it so gracious, okay? That's why grace is so important. So from there, we have to talk about this next word that is super important. It's this word hope. Okay, like First Peter, like I said, is written to a group of people who are suffering, but the most important theme in the book of First Peter is not our suffering, it is our hope. Okay, when we talk about hope, it doesn't just mean wishful thinking or wanting something good to happen in the future, like you hope your sports team does well this season kind of thing. What hope is in the Bible is it is a vision for the future that gives you confidence in the present. Okay, it's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that you build your life around. It's the thing that makes you think that there is a preferred future out there that you can work towards. And it's the thing that if you don't have, you feel crushed by. Its absence makes it hard to get out of bed in the morning. It's, when you lose hope, it's as if that preferred future you're working towards has suddenly disappeared and is not in your, your view anymore. And so what, what Peter says is we have this living hope that we have been born again to. And, and so what, what he's reminding us of is that we all build our lives around something. We, we all have something that we say our hope is based in. We, if you think of yourself 10 years from now, none of us think our lives are going to be worse 10 years from now than they are right now, right? We all have this natural tendency towards hope that says, I hope in the future things will turn out better. 
And so some of us build our lives around our success. We think that our hope is in our, either our career success, that we're going to continue to advance in our vocation, or we build our, our life around the success of our family. We want to you know, find a spouse and have some children, and our children will develop and grow into mature people. We'll have a, a home that people are envious of, those kinds of things, that kind of success. Others of us build our lives, or our hope is based around this idea of comfort. We think, you know, if I just a little more saving and then I'll be able to retire. Or if I just work a little harder, we can get that awesome vacation we've been waiting for. Or, or I can finally get my house to the place that even Joanna Gaines herself would be jealous of our decoration, all those things. We have this hope that says our comfort will be the thing that defines our life. Or others of us hope in relationships. We think, I, I hope in the future I will find the approval that my heart longs for. I hope in the future I will finally feel love and affection that I've been longing for. All of these things are hopes that we build our lives around and we say the future will be better than the present because this thing is out there and I can attain it. But the problem with each of those things that I just listed as an example, those are not living hopes. There is nothing intrinsic to those hopes that are guarantees that they are going to happen. All right, so take the example of my yard, okay? So I have a hope that I will have a nice yard this spring, but unfortunately, I live in Colorado, and grass does not grow in Colorado. And so in order to achieve this idyllic yard that my neighbors can be envious of, I have to spend so much time watering and fertilizing and aerating and pulling weeds and then realizing that if you stop any of that for a week, it's all for nothing and it's all dead. Right? And that's a picture of every hope we have apart from Jesus. The reason that my yard is a terrible thing to put hope in is because it has no life in it. It doesn't tend towards health. It tends towards death. And the same is true with everything else. Like the, the, your career is only, if you put your hope in your career, it's going to require a ton of effort and work on your part, and eventually it's going to be gone. The people that rely on you today aren't going to need you in a few years. If you, if you put your hope in your family, you can put a ton of effort and a ton of time and, and be at every kid's activity that you can, but eventually they're going to grow up and they're going to move out. Right? If, you, if you put your hope in your comfort, eventually you're going to see that the things you were hoping for, that vacation, doesn't bring the joy that you thought it would. The idea of approval, eventually you're going to realize that even though you, you think people love you, there's something deep inside that is not being answered by that. All of those things are not worth putting your hope in, which is why Peter says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that phrase, living hope, should just dominate our thoughts this entire week. Like, what does it mean that God has given us a living hope? And I think what it means is that it is a hope that has life intrinsic to itself. It is a hope that has something inside of it that continues to grow and increase and expand despite our efforts, despite our failures, despite anything that we do. It's a living hope that God puts in there, and we don't have to rely on our own efforts or someone else's decisions in order to achieve that hope. That's what a living hope means is because it's been accomplished by Jesus himself already. And here's what that looks like, verses 4 and 5. It says that this hope is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And those three words are so great, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's an immortal hope. If anything else you put your hope in, it has an expiration date except Jesus. His hope is immortal. It doesn't ever end. It's imperishable. Okay, it's an undefiled hope. It's, it's untainted, untainted. It is completely pure, and it's unfading. It won't wear out with time. Well, everything else is time-bound and is doomed for death and it will eventually fade and leave us disappointed. But this hope in Jesus is a living hope that we can rest in. 
Right? And it's not just this religious concept of, oh, things will be nice because we're Christians. All of those things that we have been hoping in, what those things are is really a shadow or a longing that we don't even fully understand for the person of Jesus. When it says that we've been given this inheritance, later he's going to tell us that that's because we are God's treasured possession. We are a special people called to him into relationship with him. All of our hopes can finally be realized in the presence of Jesus. So, so if your hope is in your success, either your family or your career, that success is really a longing for the person of Jesus. When he returns and his kingdom is made new here on earth as it is in heaven, there will be the peace of God, the shalom of God that will extend from sea to sea, from the entire universe will be changed. And instead of things tending towards death, they will be full of life and thriving the way that they're supposed to be. Right, if, if your hope is in your comfort, we have to realize that this world is broken, but if the presence of Jesus becomes a reality in our lives and in our future, then there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more death or shame of any kind. Right, if, if your hope is, is for approval and relationships and those kinds of affections from other people, we have to see that our hope ultimately is a, a, those longings are for Jesus, where at the end of time we're going to be his people forever, and we're going to experience the love of Jesus in ways that we cannot imagine to this point. Okay, so, so that's what our hope is. Then the question is, how do we know that it's going to come about? How do we know this isn't just some pipe dream that we're going to end up missing out on? And the answer is seen in that verse f- uh, 5, where he says that who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Our hope is being guarded by God's power. Think of how strong and powerful God is. How, how much of a guarantee that means our hope actually will become it. So, so think of it this way. Do you guys know who Charlton, Charlton Heston is? Does anyone know who Charlton Heston is? You're either you know, very old or very homeschooled if you know who Charlton Heston is. <laughs> so I was in the homeschool category. He you know, played Moses and Ben-Hur and all those things. But he's famous for this quote he gave at an NRA meeting where he said, you know, you'll take my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead fingertips. Right? And it's just, it turned into a bumper sticker. It was like a cultural icon for a while. But that's what God is saying here. God is saying that if he has made you his possession, that Jesus has hidden you behind him, and he says, Satan, you can have her hope when you take it from my cold, dead fingertips. He's saying, Satan, you can take this man's hope when you take it from my cold, dead fingertips. And that's the most beautiful thing about this process. The reason we know our hope is secure is because Jesus already tried that whole death thing, and he came out on top. That's the one part of this passage that we skipped over. Look at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. The reason we have this living hope is it came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, if Jesus defeated sin and death, then our hope is truly going to be alive. Okay, what Peter is saying is your hope can only be as living as your Savior. Okay, your hope can only be as living as your Savior. And if you have any other Savior besides Jesus Christ, that Savior it cannot defeat death. Your hope is only as alive as your Savior is. And thanks be to God, Jesus has defeated sin and death. Our hope is as alive as he is today. And because of that, it is being guarded for us as we await a salvation that will be revealed at the last time. And so no matter how we came in here this morning, if you, if you are a religious person who thinks God's owed you because you've been so good, we have to see that, no, that he has caused us to be born again. This has nothing to do with our effort. If you come in here and you're discouraged about your faith and your future and you think that, you know, things are not working out like I had planned, we have to say, hey, there is a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Your hope is secure because Jesus is guarding it. If you've come in here and, and you're not a follower of Christ, we just have to ask ourselves, what else are we waiting for? What, what else could we hope in that could ever deliver half as much, anything as much, as what Jesus has already offered us? 
Okay, that is the promise that we have, is that our hope is only as alive as our Savior. And thanks be to God, through the power of the resurrection, Jesus is alive and he will reign and live for eternity. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and the fact that we get to come together to celebrate this amazing fact that after three days, you decided to not be dead anymore. And that our hope is now as secure as your presence in heaven is a reality. Lord, we thank you that our hope is alive because you live and reign forever. God, we thank you that we have a future that is full of hope and joy, that our, that our vision for tomorrow can give us strength for today because you have defeated sin and death. God, I pray that that reality would shape all of our hearts, that we might be a resurrection people who recognize that there is nothing else in this life that can, that can compare to the beauty of your son, our Savior. That's in his name we pray. Amen.